Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more lights, and more love. Oh, man, I have an incredible guest today. I'm so excited. This guy has been an influence on me for the last 20-plus years. He's a legend. So many people know about him. Uh, almost a household name, you could say. Michael Cremo is on the show, author of Forbidden Archaeology and so many other great books. And we're going to talk to him in just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That's bluecobracbd.com. And check out Blue Cobra CBD oil, the highest quality CBD oil available on the market. Why is that? That is because it is created with a proprietary extraction method known as the HIT extraction method. This method was developed by Howard HIT, a.k.a. Big H, and it involves no chemicals, no solvents, no gases, nothing unnatural was involved with the extraction of the CBD from the hemp that is used in this product. So it is unlike anything else. Also, it's 100% organic and the CBD is derived from 100% organic Oregon grown hemp. And I've seen that hemp. It's amazing. And we have a discount code, a Blue Cobra CBD Midnight on Earth discount code. I'm sorry if you missed the free bottle giveaway from the last three weeks. We were giving away free bottles of Blue Cobra CBD. That has ended. Howard is here with us back on Earth, and that has ended. But we do have a discount code. And what this discount code does is give you free shipping on any order. It's a Midnight on Earth Blue Cobra CBD discount code, and that code is M-I-D, like midnight, M-I-D-C-B-D. If you put that in the box, as you check out, like I said, you will get free shipping on any order. One bottle, a hundred bottles, a thousand bottles. I should add, though, that this is for the continental 48 states in the United States. This is not for international orders, but still check it out. It's an amazing product. It wouldn't surprise me if you ordered that many because there really is no product like this out there in the CBD world. I wouldn't be talking about this on Midnight on Earth this incredible podcast where we talk about these deeply spiritual, truthful things. If I wasn't telling you the absolute truth about how there is no other product like this out there, period, period. You don't know the fertilizers, the chemicals, the sprays that are going on the hemp plants that some of these other products derive their CBD from. Some of that's coming from places like China and other places where they have no standards. And that is what they're using in these products you're getting at the grocery store in a lot of cases. So please go check out Blue Cobra CBD and understand how CBD can be beneficial for you. 
Like I often say, I start my morning with Blue Cobra CBD in my shake that I drink in the morning. I have a breakfast shake every morning. I put it in there because you can put it on your body topically for muscle aches and things like that, acne even, and you can put it in your body. So many benefits. Just search engine the benefits for CBD and you'll probably go down a CBD rabbit hole and it might change your life. And then when you're ready, come to Blue Cobra CBD and check out the highest quality CBD oil on the market, bluecobracbd.com. Please go there and check that out. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow us there. You click the button that connects us and then you know what's going on. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click the button that connects us so you know exactly what's going on all the time when we have incredible guests like Michael Cremo. You're going to know about it. And of course, the most important thing is to please tell a friend, tell someone that you know that would love to know about forbidden archaeology and would love to hear this conversation with Michael Cremo. Tell that person, midnightonearth.com. Okay. Well, we got our social media shout out out of the way, and we're going to talk to Michael Cremo, but as we always do, I need to read his bio. So here we go. Michael Cremo, self-identifying as a Vedic creationist, he is also known by his devotional name, Karma Dasa. He's an American alternative archaeologist and researcher whose work argues that humans have lived on Earth for billions of years. Michael Cremo is best known for authoring the book Forbidden Archaeology, in which he argues the existence of modern man on Earth is as long as 40 million years ago, but even longer. On the cutting edge of science and cultural issues, Michael Cremo crosses disciplinary and cultural boundaries to present a compelling case for negotiating a new consensus on the nature of reality. Growing up throughout Europe, due to his father's military career, Michael Cremo later attended George Washington University for two years before serving in the United States Navy. In the course of a few months' time, Michael might be found on a pilgrimage to sacred sites in India, appearing on a national television show or a podcast, lecturing at a mainstream science conference, or speaking to an alternative science gathering. Michael Cremo is a member of the World Archaeological Congress and the European Association of Archaeologists, as well as an associate member of the Bhaktivedanta Institute specializing in history and philosophy of science. And he's here with us today. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. How are you? I'm fine. And where in the galaxy are you? I am in Portland, <laughs> Oregon, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, it's raining today. It's a gray day here in Portland, Oregon. But it's still a wonderful place. Absolutely love it. And where are you, sir? I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, yes. Sunny we, day today. We love L.A. I absolutely love L.A. It's, it's crackling with an energy. It's an incredible place. But we're here to talk to you, the legend, the man, the myth, the legend, Michael Cremo. 
<laughs> I have to ask you, Michael, when did this all begin? Because you took this course of life to expose and unearth this, this hidden information, but there had to be a point where you came across this information for the first time and it, and it sparked this interest. When was that for you? Well, I would say in the early 1970s when I received a copy of Bhagavad Gita as it is from a Hare Krishna devotee at a Grateful Dead concert yes! in New York. Jerry! Jerry shows yeah. up everywhere. We love Jerry Garcia. He shows up all over the place. He might have been an American guru, but let's get back to that. Sorry, go ahead. So uh, I... <laughs> took that book home and I looked into it. And in a few places in the book, uh, it's mentioned that, you know, there's been human populations on this planet going way far back in time, millions of years. And as I got into reading more of the Vedic literature, I, I found increasing amounts of information about that. And I just began to wonder well, is that just some mythology that was invented thousands of years ago by these ancient people? Sure, like science or, fiction or something. Yeah. Or is there perhaps some factual basis for it? Because yeah, it was completely different than anything I'd ever heard from my teachers in high school or in university, professors in the university. So I decided to look into it. And maybe one of the reasons I decided to look beneath the surface is uh, my father was in the intelligence services. He was an intelligent officer for the United States Air Force. Really? So, so I was kind of tuned into the fact that there are secrets. There are things going on the, in the world that a lot of people simply don't know about. So that, that made me sometimes a little bit skeptical about I, what I would hear, you know, from my teachers sure, or sure. from the mainstream media. So I decided to uh, look into the history of archaeology just to see if there's any evidence there. And, you know, when you look in the current textbooks, you're not going to see any evidence that contradicts the dominant consensus, which is, in science today that human beings like us first came into existence less than 300,000 years ago. And before that, they would say no human beings on earth. So that's and the similar, maximum point, right? You're saying that's as far yeah. back as they say humans have evident 300,000 years ago. Yeah, that's what they're saying now. Okay. At the time I was writing forbidden archeology, span it was about a hundred thousand years. Um, so I, I looked, be, I said, well, let me look beyond the textbooks. So I kind of started digging into the original scientific reports published by archaeologists, geologists, other scientists who dig into the earth, paleontologists. And I was really surprised to see that there were numerous cases of these scientists reporting finding human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints in geological formations that go back, in some cases, many millions of years. Right. And 
okay, I thought, all right, maybe there's a few of these cases and I'll just absorb it, maybe write a little article about it and then go on. But as I got into it a little bit deeper, one case just led to another and it wound up being eight years of research and hundreds of cases of this kind of evidence that was enough to fill up a a 900 page book. So uh, that's how I kind of got into this forbidden archaeology topic. Then once the book was out, then I got all kinds of invitations to do interviews and speak about it. And it's become a whole career. Right. Yes. uh, As you're well known for. So it was Krishna, the Krishna consciousness, the Bhagavad Gita that awakened that knowledge, that fire inside of you to find that because you felt truth there. Did you feel intuitive truth when you read that? Or did you intuitively feel like maybe it is science fiction, maybe it's not? Or did you know it was truth and then you had to work to uncover that truth? Well, I I had an instinct or like you said, an intuition that this could be True. I mean, if it, if there was no possibility that it could be true, I wouldn't have looked into it. But there were other things in the Bhagavad Gita that I found very interesting. The idea that we've been here many times before, that there's reincarnation, that there's a cycle of ages that uh, repeats, uh, like the passing seasons of the year and uh yeah, yeah, I just saw all these things that uh, really resonated with me that I that I could actually experience had some credibility to them. And then, you know, I mean, it's a, a whole constellation of things. But uh, that specific point, yeah, if I didn't have some alternative source of knowledge, I wouldn't really have had any reason to question what my teachers were telling me in in school. And according to the Bhagavad Gita, humanity goes back 300 million years. Is that correct? Well, or is it it time immemorial? I would say time immemorial because according to the Bhagavad Gita and other Vedic texts, There are millions of universes, millions of Earth planets that are constantly being created and destroyed in vast cycles of time. And in all of those different creations, the human form is available for conscious selves to use in in this lifetime. So the the key point, and this this is kind of wandering a little bit no, from no, the we're fine. <laughs> and bones of uh, forbidden archaeology, more into the territory of what I write about in my book, Human Devolution, uh, namely that any type of body, a human body, a plant body, an insect body, a fish body, a bird body, a dinosaur body, is a vehicle for a conscious self, a soul to put it in theological terms. 
but I prefer conscious self. So it's a vehicle for a conscious self, and we can use it for one of two ways. One purpose is to become more and more deeply entangled in the world of matter, and the other is to use it to realize our real nature as beings of pure consciousness. And that means we have an origin apart from the world of matter. We, we have it, most scientists today would say as conscious beings, we've evolved up from matter. But I would propose based on my understanding of the Vedic teachings that actually were originally beings of pure consciousness and we've devolved or come into contact with uh, the lower energies of mind and matter. And in that condition, we're kind of limited uh, because whatever bodily vehicle that we have, it's temporary. I'm in a human bodily vehicle now. It came into existence at a certain point in time. And eventually, it's going to disappear in the sense that I won't be occupying this vehicle anymore. But based on the condition of my, you say, mental body, my conscious self will be carried to another body. That's reincarnation. And that'll be based on the decisions that I've made, the desires that I've cultivated in this lifetime. So, so as I say, that kind of takes us a little bit beyond the stones and bones, but that's where it leads. That's where it definitely leads to these kind of things. They do work in synthesis. They, they correlate for sure. But when you're talking about de-evolution, though, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Because a lot of people would perceive de-evolution as, as coming down from something and then losing something, but it's not necessarily the case with this situation because even though we're coming into material form, we're coming here to learn something. It's not surely for no purpose. It has a purpose. Yeah, the, the universe has a purpose. And that's why I say the human form has always been a, available. It's like if scientists send up a, a space station, they construct a space station, maybe using robot vehicles or something to, to do with artificial intelligence. They don't wait you know, for the chemicals in the space station to somehow or other combine and form some <laughs> first cell, some first self-reproducing thing that they hope will evolve into an astronaut. No, they make the space station because they've got astronauts that they want to send there uh, ah. for, for a purpose. Right. So... It's not that we're accidental beings in an accidental universe. The fact that there's a universe here and that we're in it, there's some purpose for it. And it's like you said, it's an opportunity to educate oneself about one's real nature. And what do people go to school for? They, they go to school to hopefully have a better position in life than they would have otherwise had. 
when either in terms of knowledge or uh, social position or income, they you, you go to school for because growth. you want a better life. Yeah, for growth. Yeah, for growth. So our universe is actually like that. Uh, and the opportunity for growth has always been there. And that kind of growth is obtained in a human form of life. I mean, I love the cats and the dogs and all the other uh, diff different forms of life because they are also conscious selves. Eventually, they'll attain a human form. But in their present forms, they're not able to take as much advantage of the opportunities for education. So the growth, though, doesn't that lead to the re-evolution concept where we reintegrate that higher knowledge and then become like a new human? Yeah. Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? Evolution and re-evolution. Yeah. I do talk about that. And, and my, there's a kind of evolution of consciousness, an evolution of the soul that's somewhat different from the Darwinian evolutionary concept that's being taught in most schools and universities today. And that is the idea that what's changing is not so much the body. It's not that one physical form is transforming into another physical form. The different kinds of bodily vehicles are always available. Uh, for the conscious selves, the souls that have the karma to occupy them. So it's in one lifetime, a soul may be in uh, the body of a monkey, and then in the next lifetime, in the body of a Neanderthal, and in the next time, a body of an anatomically modern human being going to school and getting an education. So it's not that the bodies are evolving one to another, it's the conscious self is evolving through these different kinds of, of bodies. Wow, that's a really profound thought. That's really, it seems where we're at because people will talk about how the lowest form of life contains the potential energy of the highest form of life. And yeah. that is rooted in development. As you develop, you then, like you said, travel up the hierarchy of lives until you reach a status that you get to leave. You get to go to the higher, higher reality. You get to graduate. Get to graduate. Yes. But what about <laughs> the people that don't graduate until everybody graduates? The bodhisattvas. That's, that's right. That's a reason to stick around. <laughs> but, uh, if, if you are a compassionate type of person that wants, really wants to help others, then that kind of opportunity will be made available to you. Yes, but, uh, I would say you know, an important thing to realize, we say lower forms of life. All the forms of life are equal in this sense. Say the same kind of soul, the same kind of conscious self is there in the body of a 
a toad or a snake or a frog, then as this, it's the same kind of soul that's in the human form. It's just more limited by its vehicle. Like I'm a human being, I can ride on a bicycle and go so fast. If I get on a motorcycle, I can go a little faster. Get in a Lamborghini, I can go faster. I go on a boat, I can go on the water. I get in a submarine, I can go under the water. I get in a plane, I can fly in the sky. I get in one of these uh, billionaire space capsules <laughs> and I can go into outer space. Yeah. So just depends on the vehicle right. that you have. You're the same person, but according to the vehicle that you're in, you're a little limited. So uh there isn't any any lower type of life if we understand that what's really alive is the conscious self without the presence of the conscious self in the bodily vehicle it's just machinery yes and that it's just a different form of life it's really different. the deal it's it's and 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 that form of life may actually give you access to a different experience, that different sets of information. And really it's just the divine expressing itself. But I do want to ask you something about your book that I thought was really interesting uh, in the introduction section or the first chapter of hidden history of the human race. You made a, a comment that you didn't believe that there were scientific co-conspirators carrying out, a satanic plot to deceive people. But I need to ask you, are you sure about that? In 2021, you wrote that back then, but in 2021, has your opinion of that changed? Well, in, in this sense, I would say even then when we were writing that, uh, my co-author Richard Thompson and I, yes, we were, uh, <clears throat> we recognized that I think we even, mentioned some cases in the book that there are cases of deliberate suppression. But whether it's deliberate or not, the result is the same. We're not getting the complete set of facts that we need in order to uh, draw proper conclusions about the origin and antiquity of the human species. I think many of these scientists who are engaged in what I call knowledge filtration yes. are, they've, they simply have been trained in a certain way, according to a certain paradigm, a, a certain set of beliefs and methods that they think are, are valid. And they would think more or less along these lines that, well, I'm just being a responsible scientist. You know, I, I don't know exactly what's wrong with this, but there, I'm sure my colleague down the hall would be able to tell me if I asked him. Right. And, you know, they, they, they don't think that they're hiding true information, which, if known, would cause people to disbelieve in their theories. They just think, well, we're being like the editor of a magazine, you know, the editor curates what goes into the magazine, you know, edits out <laughs> the, 
fake news or whatever. They, they more or less think like that. Now, that's not to deny that at the top of the whole system, there are people who do understand what's going, what they're doing. Yes. And they are deliberately. And there may be individual cases like that as well. But uh, I think it's important to be aware that some people, but th- but the main thing is the effect of this is the same, whether you're doing it deliberately or not. The yes. evidence is not coming to the attention of people who need to know it. But if there is someone at the top or some group or individual at the top, group of uh, people at the top, who is curating this information? Who do you feel, in your opinion, is at the very top of the pyramid keeping humanity unaware of these situations? And why are they doing it, in your opinion? Well, that's a very good question. And in Forbidden Archaeology, I tried, or we tried, Richard Thompson and I, to answer that question. And there's a chapter in the book that deals with the role of foundations, major foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation and others, the role that they play in in this process of knowledge filtration. Uh, This especially came out in the early part of the 20th century uh, in connection with discoveries that were being made in China. Yes. But so the so-called Peking man. Yeah, the Peking Beijing, man, right. As, as they call it. So there was a, a Canadian uh, medical doctor, Davidson Black, who was a supporter of Darwinian evolution. And he believed that humans originated in North Asia, in other words, part of which is now occupied by China. And I mean, today, most scientists believe humans originated in Africa, but he had the idea that they originated in China. So he went to China and went to uh, how he got into China is that he was employed by a hospital and medical school that was operated in Peking by the Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, his work was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And I looked at the uh, history of that foundation. And in addition to funding uh, research that was meant to show that human beings evolved from apes, they were also simultaneously doing research that into genetics. Uh, they were doing research into the chemical origins of life. They were doing uh, research into the origin of the universe. You know, they were funding astronomical research. Right. They were funding psychological research. And 
it's kind of interesting that that happened because originally the Rockefeller Foundation was dedicated to uh, Baptist missionary work. And now you really branched John, out, it John, seems like. John, John, D., John D. Rockefeller was very strict Baptist, and he funded Baptist missionary work in hospitals and various parts of the world, especially ones in which Standard Oil, which was his oil monopoly company, had uh, big markets in or was trying to develop a presence in. But uh, the new generation, John Rockefeller, uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. and others, uh, turned the foundation into something else. They directed it more towards scientific questions. And they said, one of the presidents of the Rockefeller Foundation said, okay, people see that we're investing in astronomy, we're investing in human evolution studies, we're investing in genetics, and we're investing in uh, Freudian psychology, and we're investing, he said, it looks like we're scattered. But he said, it's all one program. It's uh, you know, we have to study you know, fruit flies and genetics because we want to understand ultimately the human organism. And to understand the complex human organism, we first have to understand the very basic principles of biological organisms. And we have to understand the underlying uh, rules of physics and chemistry. Uh, that's why we have to investigate the origin of the universe. But he says all one program yes. devoted to the goal of beneficial control of human behavior. So then naturally uh, there comes the question for whose benefit? Exactly. And who decides that? <laughs> yeah. Who decides that? <laughs> who decides it is certain elite circles and uh you know he, he, some some of the officials of the foundation at the time were very open about what they're doing you know they said you know what we're doing is by you know seeding research money into these particular areas we're setting an agenda for the universities and the scientists and you know they said it would be it would be nice if ideas could be spread without the influence of money but that's not how the world operates you, know, you provide grant money for people for scientists to do research in certain areas they will go for it they'll go where the money takes them and in some cases they produce results that are reflective of the people that are financing the grants and what their, yes, their position they is. Choose, they set the agenda by choosing <laughs> what they're going to fund it, what they're going to fund. I'm sure that frustrates you as a scientist, an archaeologist. So, uh, well, I'm independent of that system <laughs> or else I wouldn't be here talking to you. <laughs> That's a good so, point. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't be saying these things. So, but why, uh, why, Michael, is there so much 
fear so much resistance to what you're saying and what your book presents? Why is there so much trouble for mainstream archaeology to accept these findings? Well, and we're not just talking about archaeology. We're talking about the scientific world generally. Right. Uh, Archaeology is the particular area that I've chosen to highlight. But uh, I think it has a, a lot to do with what we were talking about earlier, the conscious self, uh, the opportunity for educating oneself about one's real nature as the purpose of human life. You're saying the, the elite don't want that information out there? They don't want people to tap into that? Science made some major decisions uh, about five or six centuries ago in Europe and later in America. And you know, if you go back you know, five or six centuries, you'll see that scientists were investigating a lot of things they wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole these days. Right. Different things related to subtle energies and non-material substances and higher intelligence and the universe having something to do with the order and complexity that we observe around us, different paranormal phenomena, things like alchemy and astrology and other such topics. But then they made a decision uh, in, in organizations such as the Royal Institution in London and other scientific societies that were forming in Europe, basically. And they decided, we're going to set aside all these subtle, mystical, paranormal sorts of topics, and we're going to focus on ordinary matter and that was a very productive decision because by focusing on ordinary matter, how it operates according to mathematically describable laws, they were able to get a very good understanding of how gross matter functions. And with that knowledge, they were able to come up with technologies that governments like governments especially like anything to do with new weapons. weapons. <laughs> and uh, the corporations that were forming, they liked new pharmaceuticals that they could sell, sure. you know, medical items that could be sold for a profit, a very high profit. Uh, they also appreciated consumer products. And, you know, the governments liked it, the militaries liked it, the corporations liked it, the financiers liked it, and even the people, us, you know, we became co-opted into that, you know, because we liked all the fun stuff that they were sure. providing. The technology and the, you know, easing of life's burdens, really. Yeah. So th that was done, however, at a cost that they're not dealing with the entire picture of reality. Right. You know, they're not dealing with consciousness. They're not dealing yeah. with so many things. And we've gotten a certain kind of world because of it. 
uh, a world that's divided into competing groups on the basis of nationality, race, religion, so many things in competition with each other. We're in competition with each other for survival. There is violence on every level of human society. We're destroying the planet. Yeah, and most people in the world today think that the main purpose of human life is to produce and consume more and more material things. And by engaging in that process of material production and consumption, it's generating wealth that flows into certain pockets in an unjust and unfair manner. Now, what keeps that whole system going is that people act according to their identity, how they identify themselves. If you can control how a person identifies himself or herself, then you don't have to spend a lot of time and effort uh, telling them what to do. They'll do it automatically. Uh, you know, for example, if I think I'm an American man, then I behave like an American man. You don't have to tell me, I'll just do it. Uh, if I think I'm a machine made of matter in competition with other machines made of matter for survival, I will behave in, in that fashion. My goals, my values, my objectives in life will reflect that. So I think that is the reason why there's resistance ultimately. Whoa. Because if there were another kind of identification that people had, I'm a being of pure consciousness, you're a being of pure consciousness, we're all related on that platform. There's no need to divide ourselves up into competing groups. Uh, we can satisfy our material needs in the most simple, natural, fair, and efficient way possible and put most of our human energy into developing the resource of consciousness. That would be the end of civilization as we know it. But the beginning of a new civilization. The beginning of a new and better one. Yeah. <laughs> but is that happening right now? Is there a blossoming of human consciousness right now that's incorporating the technological advancements that we've learned as a species with the lost spirituality, the ancient techniques? Are they now coming back into modern times? I, I think there are attempts to do that. Uh, sometimes uh, these things get co-opted by, you know, the, the mainstream. <laughs> and, you know, you get kind of a faux version of, you know, being natural or being organic or whatever. It, it just becomes another trend, another trend, <laughs> you know, another fashion. Right. Uh, you know, and it gets commercialized and co-opted in a sense. But I think there are real groups of people who have decided that they're going to opt out of different things that are being imposed by the current system. I'm not going to get too specific about no, no, it. No, no, sure. But uh, I think anybody who's listening will know what I'm talking about. Definitely. But, you know, I mean, there are people who really are going back to nature, who really are uh, 
going off the grid who really are trying to uh, come to a, a better understanding of how to relate to others, uh, not on so much on the basis of race and class and gender and everything. Well, it's light. We have to see each other as light beings. Yeah. That, that's the common ground. When we see each other as living light, it doesn't matter what vehicle you're driving. It doesn't matter what yeah. car you have because we are truly living light. And that's, that's how we get to that united consciousness, that united earth where we're all living together in harmony is when we get to the point where we can see each other as living light. Yeah. And, uh, there are, uh, I mean, sometimes you hear even politicians say these things, but then the, <laughs> the way they act kind of goes completely <laughs> against what they, yeah. what they say. So, you know, we need people who leaders who walk the talk, you know, they say, well, you've been a student of Vedic texts, like you said, since 1970, good old grateful dead coming into play. But in those texts, in your studies, in your life, I believe you're 72 now or getting close 73. to 73. Okay. And, um, did they talk about in the Vedic texts, a new earth, some sort of new time when humanity will be living in harmony with spirit and harmony with the earth and in harmony with each other. Do they ever talk about those situations? Yes, there, there are times when such things happen. As I said, the Vedic concept of time is cyclical. And right. This is not just, these ideas aren't found just in, the Vedic culture. They're found in many of the world's wisdom. Yeah, the Hopi, Native Americans. Yeah, absolutely. But they even have, well, for example, the, the cycle of four ages. According yes. to the Vedic texts, there's uh, a cycle of four ages. Yes. They're called yugas. And the first one, it's called the Satya Yuga, the age of truth. And in that age, it's uh, that People are all spiritually inclined. They're all living very simply and naturally. They haven't divided themselves up into different classes. Uh, so, yeah, living simply in harmony and a, a state of awareness of everyone being uh, a being of pure consciousness that was there at a certain point in time. But uh, as the seasons change, things also conditions change as the yugas progress. In the next age, people start dividing themselves up into different groups. We are the teachers, we are the rulers, we are the business people, we are the farmers and laborers, and you know, things become there's still a lot of moral and ethical principles, but there's some division in society between city dwellers and country dwellers. And, and that's where we're at now or where we're going to? We're, we're going in a, in a direction. In the next age, there, there begins to be conflict between uh, the forces of darkness and light. 
because they start competing with each other. And then in the next stage, which is called the Kali Yuga, which we're in now. Oh, right now. Okay. Things become really bad. Uh-oh. It's like. <laughs> so we're in the Kali Yuga right now. Yeah. We're like kind of anybody who's got any real intelligence got out of the cycle. <laughs> the Saki Yuga. We're kind of like the. Oh, people who are really hanging on. Well, the, we're grand observers, right? Right. <laughs> so, but there is uh, a, a, a prediction that for the next 10,000 years, actually a period that started about 500 years ago, where although the general trend in Kali Yuga is down, it's an age of increasing environmental and social disturbance, which we sort of see happening around us. Uh, even though the general trend is down, there's a 10,000-year opportunity where things kind of go up spiritually, and we're at the beginning of that wave yes. right now. Yes. So That's good it's news. Like a, a special last chance opportunity to avoid the worst of Kali Yuga, which is <laughs> coming. And uh, so I'm I'm hopeful about that because I do see signs that people, even though we it is a very dismal age, that some people are seeing yeah there is an opportunity here so that will be there for the yes. next 9500 years so we are moving forward then we do have a chance for growth because like you said uh there are the cycles talked about by the hopi of these and other cultures of these four ages where we i guess we blew ourselves up and we had to start all over yeah. again yeah, I mean, they have, I mean, the way this is symbolized in uh, the Vedic text is that there's a, a bull who represents Dharma, the forces of goodness. And, and with each of the passing four ages, it loses a leg. So after the Satya Yuga, it's standing on three legs. After the next Yuga, it's standing on two. And the, after the next Yuga, it's standing on one leg. So that's where we are now. We're standing uh, on one leg. So then are we and going the, towards a united earth then? Like that, that heaven on earth scenario that we love to talk that about? That will happen again after the Kali Yuga is finished. Uh, yeah. But the... The North American Native, the Native American people, they, different tribes, especially in the West and Central United States, they have the idea of a sacred buffalo who has four legs because they're four ages. And progressively, each age is declining. And they're saying, now the buffalo is standing on one leg. Whoa! And it, we're headed. What was that song from the sixties? Eve of destruction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but can we subvert that? Can we subvert yeah, that with our collective just, will? Yes. Be, just because it's raining, it doesn't mean you have to get wet. Ah, there you go. 
where you can shelter yourselves, you can shelter those who you care about. So, you know, that opportunity is there. Well, I do want to ask you, since Forbidden Archaeology was published, has there been elements of it that have been accepted into the mainstream thinking? Well, in, in certain minor ways, I would say yes. As, as I said a little bit earlier in the show, when I was doing the research and writing for Forbidden Archaeology in the late 1980s and early 1990s, scientists had the idea that humans first appeared on Earth about 100,000 years ago. Then in the next decade, you know, the later 1990s, they brought it up to 200,000. And now they're up to about 300,000 years for Homo sapiens. So they're taking what I would call baby steps in the right <laughs> direction. So in 500 so, years, they'll, they're still going to be getting closer. They'll be 100 million years in 500 years. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're slowly making progress in the right direction. Another, another idea that we introduced in Forbidden Archaeology was the idea that different hominin species, different human types of ancestors you know, were existing, uh, coexisting with each other. Yes. At, at the time we were writing, science had another idea that, you know, there was a linear process of evolution. You go from Homo erectus to the Neanderthals to humans. In other words, one species goes extinct and then the, the other one, one begins. Comes, yeah. You know, linear. Now they're moving to what we talked about in uh, Forbidden Archaeology, namely it's like a bush. You know, you've got lots of different hominins exist, coexisting with each other. Uh, Neanderthals coexisting with anatomically modern humans. Uh, a, a new species they call the Denisovans. Right, I was going to ask you about that. <clears throat> All coexisting. So that's, uh, that's uh, something that, an idea that we introduced in, wow. in archaeology that's now mainstream. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so, and the Denisovians, or I, I might have pronounced that wrong. Uh, the How do you pronounce that? The Denis, the... That new I don't, I don't know. You you're you might be pronouncing it <laughs> the, Well that hobbit me. type human. They were only they were very small, I believe, right? Is that the recent discovery? They were like three feet tall or something of that effect? Well, they they tend to put some of these hominins in that category. Yeah, I think recently they found something in Indonesia or Southeast Asia indicating that had a, a genetic uh, signature that was heavily Denisovan. Denisovan, yes, that's the word. I think that that's how I see it usually written. And some people theorize that the Denisovan is potentially extraterrestrial, like a seeded human uh, brought to this planet. Do you believe any of the theories that we may have been transplanted from another Earth-like planet and then uh, colonizing this Earth? 
Well, I believe that we're all extraterrestrials in this sense, that is, beings of pure consciousness, we're not yes. from the world of matter. So in that sense, we're all extraterrestrials. Now, within our material universe, according to the Vedic literatures, there are hundreds of thousands of human-like species existing on different planets. And there has been communication between uh, those extraterrestrial human-like species and the humans on our planet. As a matter of fact, some of the principal uh, characters, personalities mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita are terrestrial-celestial hybrids. In other words, they may have a, 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 a terrestrial mother and a celestial or extraterrestrial father. Right, so different and, DNA. Yeah, and... You know, so I'm not you know, saying about any particular case, but the general principle that uh, there have been extraterrestrial influences on the human populations that we now have on this planet is certainly something that I have no problem accepting. Yes, it's in the Vedic texts, you're saying. Yeah. And of course, it's also in the biblical text, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of uh, God who were the, the Nephilim, of the course. Nephilim. Yes. They saw the daughters of the earth and found them fair. Yeah. Well, that says something for human women, that no matter who you are in the universe, you're still the most beautiful creature of all time. Something about human women are irresistible. I, I, I would have to agree. But I do have to ask you, Michael, what are some of the recent findings, archaeological findings that you could put maybe in a sequel book that had you would have found that back in the 90s, you would have put it in Forbidden Archaeology, but it's new, it's out there now, and may actually, uh, you know, maybe you could make a sequel book with all the new information. Well, I, I have made a sequel book, and I... Yeah. I finished the manuscript for it. Really? And I will be bringing that out. Have you mentioned it before this soon. interview? I think I have been mentioning it for a couple wow. of years now. But Okay. But, you know, yes. one good thing about <laughs> the lockdown with, you know, the pandemic and everything, so more or less has given me time to finish <laughs> that manuscript because you know you get distracted you yeah know, michael would you like to come to europe michael would you like to come here and there well sure <laughs> <laughs> and then you never at least i it's hard to have that free time yeah disciplined enough to uh, finish a manuscript for a book. So with the the pandemic uh, restrictions on travel and you know personal appearances and things like that, it's given me time to finish that manuscript. So it's oh, amazing. That's I'm amazing kind of news. Going, going through the proofreading of it now, you know, to 
dot all the I's and cross all the T's. <laughs> Did, have you come up with a name for it? Forbidden Archaeology 2. More Forbidden Archaeology. Well, sort of like <laughs> that. I, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to call it Extreme Human Antiquity. Yeah. And, there and you go. As a subtitle, More Forbidden Archaeology. There you go. Or what was, uh, what did they call it? Uh, fan fantasy arch no fantastic archeology span back in the yeah. 1800s. I was reading in your book. Yeah. Well, that was, that was, uh, a phrase that one of the professional debunkers and skeptics came up with. <laughs> he thought that was a, a bad thing. But it sounds pretty good. Fantastic archaeology. Yeah, I mean that got my interest. I was like, wow, I wanna I wanna check that out. <laughs> hey, he probably peaked I, I a bunch it had of the interest. opposite effect that he yeah. intended. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And sometimes they, they're like that. You know, they think they're putting something down, but they're actually just creating more interest in it. So this book should be coming out within the next what, six months to a year? Yeah, I mean, that would be that would be the goal. I think that would be about the soonest it could come out because I still got to select illustrations for it and you know do a few final things for it. But uh, that sounds reasonable. But I should say we don't have too much time, maybe another 15 minutes or so, but I do want to ask you a couple more questions before we go. Sure. Where is our history? What happened to our history? How does it get lost? How does hundreds of millions of years, potentially billions of years of human history become lost? Is it really just the degradation of material things? Like everything has a half-life, everything will turn to dust eventually, or is there something else? Is, are we not allowed to have access to that history because of how we're growing currently? Kind of all of the above. Really? You know, the the geological record, which is where you would find such evidence, isn't uh, perfect. It gets destroyed. You know, I've seen geological reports that the different layers of sedimentary rock that have been deposited on Earth, which is where you would find fossils of human fossils, human footprints, human artifacts, though 90% of those sedimentary layers that have ever been deposited since the earth was formed have disappeared because of erosion, plate tectonics, and things like that. So we're not getting a, a perfect record. And then what's left has not been entirely searched you know, we can't say that archaeologists have looked at every sedimentary layer that could possibly contain human fossils. Right. And then what they have looked at has been subjected to this knowledge, knowledge filtering. filtering. Yes. Yeah, you talk about that so, a lot. Ugh. So it's almost like, you know, if you have, a, a, say, a thousand page book and you've only got 10 pages left of it and the 10 pages you've got left are all shredded into tiny little pieces and you've only looked at a small fraction of those pieces and the people who have looked at those small pieces of 
fragments of a man, of a book are uh, throwing some of them out and ignoring some of them. And then you try to construct what the whole book is from that. That's uh, it, it's not <laughs> going to work out too well, but uh, I think it is significant that if even with all those limitations that there are so many anomalies, there are so many out of, some people call them oop arts, out of place artifacts, footprints, art of human bones. So I, I, I think that's significant. Another problem is that people tend to ignore other sources of, of knowledge, like what's there in the ancient wisdom traditions, like the Na Native American people. They, uh, they don't think that they came to their present locations 20,000 years ago by walking across from Siberia to Alaska on a land bridge that supposedly existed at that time. And they think they've been around since the beginning. Uh, th that was pointed out by a, a Native American scholar named Vine Deloria Jr., who's a, a, a Sioux Indian but also a scholar and historian. He wrote a book called uh, Red Earth, White Lies, in which he extensively cited research from forbidden archeology span in support of the Native American traditional understandings of their origins and, and history. So I was very pleased to see that you know that uh, that you know the work had had that effect on uh, a Native American scholar who was also interested in these questions. Well, it helped so, reawaken that. It helped reawaken that ancient Native knowledge in a Native American, and he brought that back to his tribe and his people. But do you think, Michael, that we will ever know the true story of humanity's history? In this dimension, maybe if once we leave and we go into those higher dimensions, maybe we'll get the whole story. But do you think we'll ever well, know here? I think it's possible. It, as I said, it may require understanding that the current methods are not going to give the type of knowledge that we would hope to have. Uh, and even... You know, the supporters of the scientific theories will say, well, we're just giving what we think now based on the science as we understand it. Just like this CDC is saying one thing and another thing about Yeah, I know. Stuff. Don't get me started. You know, I won't. I won't. Like I, said, <laughs> I, I think that, that's enough of that. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole. <laughs> what they say is based on the science, this is what we thought at the time. Based on the science, this is what we think. So all science is like that. Based on what we know now, this is what we think, or at least this group of influential people within our discipline, you know, the authorities in our discipline, this is what we've concluded at the present moment based on what we know now. Right. So that could just go on endlessly. 
which for me, uh, there may be other ways to have an understanding about these things, which might involve accepting what comes down in these ancient wisdom traditions as uh, having uh, some truth value. And perhaps one day that knowledge will be unlocked when the gatekeepers who have this forbidden archaeology locked up in university storage rooms or some of these strange places, one day that will be opened with the passing of time. But Michael, I do want to thank you for joining us. It's been an incredible episode. I barely got to half the questions that I had for you, but it's been so good. I really appreciate you being here. Don't let me talk so long. Oh, I love letting you talk. Are you kidding? That's the whole purpose of this. This is not about me, my friend. This is about you, but that's okay. Cause we'll have you back. You'll come back. We'll just okay. continue this conversation another time. But is there anything you want to leave the audience with before we go, before, uh, before we check out of this interview? Well, uh, they might tune in to Coast to Coast on November 1st. Yes, for that more Michael be, Cremo. Yeah. And at the present moment, I'm in contact with someone who's inviting me to give a presentation at a conference that's going to be held next April at Mount Shasta. Oh, I'm going to be there. So I'll be in touch uh, about things like that. Yeah. Let me know. If people want information about it, they can, it, it will be announced when it becomes finalized. Yeah. So there is a conference coming up at Mount Shasta in April. You're going to be a part of that. I live in Oregon and I've been really meaning to go down to Mount Shasta. I just talked with someone about this in my last interview, actually. So this is now confirmation. I'm going to meet you. We're going to meet in person, Mr. Michael Cremo at Mount Shasta. Well, that would be great. <laughs> well, I do want to tell everyone where to find you. You can go to M as in Michael M Cremo C R E M O.com. And you can find him there. He has books that are all available for purchase on Amazon and other places. Hidden history of the human race, my science, my religion, human de-evolution, forbidden archaeology and forbidden archaeology's impact. And then of course, forbidden archaeologist. He's got a lot of books out there. Please go check them out. Michael, thank you for being here. And everyone, we'll see you next week. Midnight on Earth.